This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 182 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is someone who you probably wouldn't expect to hear on this particular podcast. He's a man who spent his entire 20-year NBA career as a shooting guard for the Los Angeles Lakers, becoming an 18-time All-Star, winning a league MVP award, instrumentally helping the team to win five championships, and establishing himself as one of the greatest basketball players of all time before announcing his retirement in 2015 through a poem called Dear Basketball that he and his production company have now turned into a beautiful animated short of the same name with animation by Disney legend Glenn Keane, a score by music legend John Williams, and narration by the writer and subject himself, the great Kobe Bryant. But first, let's take a moment to discuss what's happened in the awards race since our last episode. The New York Film Festival, from which I'm recording this introduction, kicked off on Thursday night with the world premiere of Richard Linklater's Last Flag Flying, featuring Steve Carell, Brian Cranston, and Lawrence Fishburne as old friends who reunite decades after serving together in Vietnam. The film, which Roadside Attractions will distribute on November 3rd and Amazon will subsequently stream, was received respectfully, but like several other films that have been unveiled during the early days of this edition of the New York Film Fest, including Noah Baumbach's dramedy The Meyerowitz Stories, New and Selected, which Netflix will release on October 13th, it looks unlikely that it will end up figuring into the Oscar race in a major way. Thus far, the films that have clicked the most at and around Lincoln Center, where the Film Fest is held, have been carryovers from earlier festivals. From Berlin, Agnieszka Holland's Spore, which is Poland's entry for the Best Foreign Language Film Oscar Race, and from Cannes, the Palme d'Or winner, The Square, which is Sweden's Oscar entry, the documentary Faces Places, which French New Wave legend Agnes Varda co-directed, and my personal favorite film of 2017 so far, The Florida Project. Since the interview at the center of this episode, however, connects to a film that can be considered a work not only of animation, but also a documentary and a short, I thought this might be a fun week to devote our opening segment to revisiting the strange and fascinating history of documentaries at the Oscars, both feature length, which these days means anything over 40 minutes, and short, meaning anything 40 minutes or under. Let's start with the shorts. The Academy has presented Oscars for documentary features going back to 1941, but for short films, even longer. In the 1930s, the Academy's hugely influential librarian, Margaret Herrick, championed the cause of shorts, and the number of categories recognizing various types of them grew to reflect different lengths, one reel or two, genres, comedy or novelty, and eventually types, animated, live action, or documentary, categories for which continue to be presented at the Oscars today. Not everyone, though, was as convinced as Herrick that shorts deserved this magnitude of recognition. Charles Burkett, the great screenwriter who was Billy Wilder's writing partner and a member of the Academy's Board of Governors and eventually its president, kept a diary that was published in recent years. On June 16, 1947, he wrote, quote, I stopped at the Academy and Margaret Herrick babbled away, defending her beloved shorts department while I fumed at the ridiculous proportion of awards they carry away, close quote. In November 1949, he added, quote, Stopped at the Academy for a long talk with Margaret Herrick, largely about the short subject branch, which threatens to resign en masse at the cutting down of their awards, close quote. In other words, people have had problems with the Shorts Awards going back some 70 years, and Shorts filmmakers have pushed back for just as long. But it was in the early 1990s that things really came to a head. In 1992, the Academy's Awards Committee presented the Academy's Board of Governors with a proposal that called for the elimination of both the documentary Short Oscar and the live-action Short Oscar. The proposal read in part, quote, they reflect a time in the 1930s and 1940s when a trip to the movies included a newsreel, a cartoon, perhaps a Pete Smith short, and a 10-minute documentary titled To the Shores of Iwo Jima or Life at the Zoo. In that era, it made perfect sense for the Academy to seek out the best of these short films and honor them. 
For the past quarter century, though, short documentaries and short live-action films have been virtually non-existent in American theaters, close quote. That wasn't entirely correct because in those days, many museums commissioned longish shorts for their IMAX screens, some of which were quite good and made decent money. Even so, few filmmakers earned a living making shorts, and some filmmakers argued that the dearth of shorts being made meant that mediocre ones were getting Oscar nominations and wins. Meanwhile, TV critics and viewers argued that the continued presentation of those awards was prolonging Oscar ceremonies that already were running too late into the night. In November 1992, the Academy's Board of Governors approved the elimination of the documentary short and live-action short categories, reassuring naysayers that those sorts of films still would be eligible for Oscars, but in categories that already recognized feature-length live-action and documentary films. That did little to appease those who cared about short films, since they felt that shorts would never have a realistic shot of garnering recognition if forced to compete against feature-length films. Alec Lorimore, a documentary filmmaker who was nominated for the Best Documentary Short Oscar for 1995's The Living Sea and 2000's Dolphins, and who has been a member of the Academy since 1995, says... It's like comparing a short story to a novel. You just can't do it. In terms of the depth of storytelling and character development and all of that, it's just... It's a mismatch. You know, that's why they have heavyweight divisions and super lightweights. <laughs> Variety reported on the Academy Board's decision the next day under a headline that became an instant classic, Academy Eats Its Shorts. In response to the initial wave of objections over this decision, then-Academy President Robert Ramey said, quote, I understand and am sympathetic to the documentary short filmmaker's position, but this is not our mission. They should be honored by the IDA, the International Documentary Association. It's that organization's area, not ours. The winners don't thank Paramount or Michael Eisner. They give appreciation to HBO, close quote. But the uproar grew and grew, and an organization called Friends of Short Film began organizing a petition and landed the backing of some major names in the industry. Among the signatories were Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, who got their start by making shorts, as did Taylor Hackford, who won an Oscar for a live-action short that launched his career, Others who signed on to an open letter to the Board of Governors included Francis Ford Coppola, Kirk Douglas, Michael Douglas, Michael Eisner, Samuel L. Jackson, Jeffrey Katzenberg, Spike Lee, Jack Lemmon, Sidney Poitier, Robert Redford, Meryl Streep, Barbara Streisand, Robert Town, and Harvey Weinstein. As a result of this sort of pressure, the Board of Governors formed a subcommittee to research the issue, and a resulting 92-page report unanimously recommended keeping both the live-action and documentary short awards. It was presented to and passed by the Board in early 1994. The same categories, however, were targeted again in 1999, by which point Lorimore had joined the Academy. What happened was, as fortune would have it, one or two days after that headline came out, there happened to be a screening at the Academy for the finalists of films that were up for live action and animated short. So a whole bunch of us happened to be at the Samuel Goldwyn Theater, and we'd just seen this headline, and we were all outraged. But we were all in the lobby together, which would never happen. Yeah, yeah. It was just a stroke of fate. And we decided to put together an ad hoc group and meet, you know, in a couple of days, and that became the beginning of that whole effort, the Friends of the Short Film and, and the booklet that was presented to the Academy and the letters that were published in the trades. And that all started that night at that screening. Once again, the Friends of the Short Film mobilized. There was a big meeting at the Board of Governors meeting, and, and a fellow by the name of Bob Rogers, who's a member of the Shorts branch, still is, he led the effort to put together this massive booklet with tabs. It was about an inch and a half thick, making all the various arguments for all the various shorts it was really well done. It mm -hmm. was, you know, somebody could have gotten a doctoral dissertation off of this mm -hmm. thing. And it was presented to the board. And they were kind of stuck with it. Mm -hmm. So what they did was they hired this independent firm that does focus groups, particularly in the entertainment world and such, research, audience analysis. And they vetted the book. And that took about three months. And they came back with a report that basically said, yeah, this is all true. Everything in this book right. is true. The decision that the board had passed in January was rescinded by June, and shorts have not faced another serious threat since then. 
As for the documentary feature Oscar, for the first several decades of its existence, there weren't all that many ambitious and or high-quality documentaries being made in any given year, and so few objected to the Academy's nominees and winners. By the 1980s, though, thanks in part to technological improvements, funding from HBO, and other developments, the quantity and quality of docs was improving exponentially, and the Academy's selections began to face greater scrutiny and criticism, particularly as they failed to even nominate some of the most acclaimed docs ever made, including Claude Lonsman's 1985 film Shoah, Errol Morris's 1988 film The Thin Blue Line, Terry Zwigoff's 1994 film Crumb, and perhaps most famously Steve James' Hoop Dreams, also released in 1994. It seemed like instead of these films, the Academy nominated any given Holocaust documentary or other selections that seemed to reflect an appreciation more of subject than of art or creativity. Not surprisingly, this had more than a little to do with who was making the selections and how. The documentary feature Oscar nominees were not chosen by a branch of documentary filmmakers, as existed for more than a dozen other types of filmmakers in the Academy, but rather by a small committee of people, some documentary filmmakers but others not, who volunteered to see a lot of documentaries in any given year. The people who were able to make that commitment tended not to be particularly young or active in their careers, but rather of a certain age and therefore a certain conservative bent as far as their tastes, and the process they employed to make their selections at the time was not without flaws, as explained here by Arnold Schwartzman, a documentary filmmaker and graphic designer who won the Best Documentary Feature Oscar for 1981's Genocide and has been a member of the Academy since 1982. Well, the process was the judgment was done by volunteers from all branches of the Academy, and we would meet, as far as I remember, there weren't more than maybe 30 or 40 members in a small theatre upstairs the Academy on, on Wilshire. And we had this terrible idea of having flashlights. <laughs> and after, I can't remember now, it was 20 minutes, whatever, if you didn't think it was going anywhere, everybody put the flashlight. And so if you're not it, into the movie, just because no, you had so no, many movies right. to see. So if there was a majority of it, that was it. Anyway, because of all that flack, that obviously something had to be done. And we had this tremendous president, Robert Ramey, who one day called me and uh, said, do you have time to come and have lunch? And there was a group of us, of, I think about half a dozen, we met in a restaurant and we discussed the, the issue. And he was really keen on doing something. And I had a good relationship with him already because at that time I was the chairman of BAFTA Los Angeles. And also I was designing the Oscar posters and programs uh, and the cinema trailers and so on. So we knew each other. So anyway, cut a long story short, the day I came in to present the poster for 2000, he sat down and says, great, let's go with it. And then he said, I have something very important. And this was in one of the boardrooms, come into my office. <laughs> so he, along with Bruce Davis, the executive director, we moved in his office and he said, now, you're near the window, you haven't escaped, <laughs> but I, <laughs> would you like, would you agree to be the chair of the documentary executive committee. I said, yeah, <laughs> immediately, why, why not? The documentary executive committee was tasked with improving the process by which nominees for the best documentary feature Oscar were chosen. With Schwartzman as its chair and 11 other documentary filmmakers, including Laura Moore, serving alongside him, the committee enacted a rule change in 1999, which amended the process by which many eligible documentary features were whittled down to just five nominees. Now, rather than a small group of flashlight-wielding, primarily conservative-minded senior citizens choosing the nominees, dozens of documentary filmmakers chosen by the Documentary Executive Committee would pick 12 semifinalists, and then any member of the Academy who was willing to watch those could help pick the final five. While that was a step in the right direction, the Documentary Committee still was disenfranchised. By the year 2000, there were 127 documentary filmmakers in the Academy, with 69 Oscar wins between them, which one would think was enough to merit a branch of their own, but in fact they were dispersed among several branches. 58 were classified as members at large, including Charles Guggenheim, Barbara Koppel, and Schwartzman. 43 were members of the Unified Short Films and Feature Animation branch, including Ken Burns, Frida Lee Mock, and Lorimore. And 26 more were members of one of the other existing branches, such as the directing branch, in the case of Michael Apted, Errol Morris, and Frederick Wiseman. Meanwhile, many of the best documentary filmmakers in the world weren't members of the Academy at all, 
among them D.A. Pennebaker and Albert Mazels, in part because there weren't members of a unified documentary branch to sponsor them for admission. One day I actually said to Bob Ramey, how comes after 60 years we've been, uh, the Academy has been honoring documentaries with an Academy Award, but we don't have a branch. And I said, I, I think it's essential that we have that. He said, well, you're the chairman, do something about it. So again, I must say it, it was Frida and Alec that did all the spade work. I was just the voice that presented it to each committee. And they put together this incredible document, spelling out all, all the, the, the problems we've had in the past and how it could be cured by having this branch. And so I went before a number of committees. I remember one, I think it was the General Membership Committee, and it was Alan Bergman was the chair. And I was all set to give this very impassioned speech. And I stood up and Alan just said, no problem, Arnold, you'll get your branch. <laughs> and I sat down. After Schwartzman's committee submitted its proposal to the Academy's full Board of Governors on June 13, 2000, the General Membership Review Committee considered it and voted unanimously to endorse and recommend it to the full Board of Governors. Some on the board had reservations and even expressed them, Laura Moore and Schwartzman recall. In the process of all this, one thing that came back from one of the governors was, well, you know, you're never going to get that branch. It's not going to happen. So why not? They said, well, the table's too small. I said, the table's too small? What table's too small? Well, in the boardroom, the boardroom. <laughs> there's only a certain number of chairs and like, we just had to add three more chairs for the visual effects branch, and like, the table's getting too crowded. Um, I, I remember that. I was absolutely shocked. Even so, the Board of Governors approved the creation of a documentary branch on August 15, 2000, and on January 24, 2001, 60 years after the first documentary feature Oscar was presented to the film Churchill's Island, documentary filmmakers officially had a branch of their own, with representation on the board. It was the Academy's first new branch since the creation of the visual effects branch in 1995, which itself came 42 years after the creation of the newest one before it. In other words, it was a big deal. Documentary filmmakers who had been classified as members at large were automatically transferred into the branch, and those who already belonged to other branches were invited to choose between remaining in that branch or joining the documentary branch. Most were delighted to have the chance to be reclassified. And not long thereafter, the documentary branch won the right to have two other governors seated on the board, just like every other branch. Sixteen years later, to the delight of Schwartzman and Lorimore, the branch is still around and going strong. It's amazing, and we should feel proud about it. And everyone just accepts it as a fact of nature now, when <laughs> once upon a time it was a ridiculous idea. All of the aforementioned activism coincided with a period of explosive growth for documentaries, sort of a period of democratization for the genre. Cameras were becoming lighter and cheaper. Editing software could be purchased for any personal computer. Cable TV and the internet were making it possible to circumvent the traditional distribution mechanisms and easily get films seen by the world. And the quality of documentaries just got better and better. Meanwhile, the rise of reality TV was conditioning society at large to take a greater interest in observing real people doing real things. And today, 16 years after the creation of the documentary branch, documentaries of all lengths are as impressive as ever. My thanks to Arnold Schwartzman and Alec Lorimore for speaking with me for this segment. And now for my interview with Kobe Bryant. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of Bryant's Granity Studios in Newport Beach, California, the 39-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics. Among them, how and why his love affair with basketball developed throughout his childhood culminating in his then rare decision to enter the NBA draft right out of high school and him then becoming the youngest person ever to play in an NBA game, why his career only really took off in 1999 after Phil Jackson became his coach for the first time, and why he and his teammate Shaquille O'Neal brought out the best and worst in each other over the next few years, how in 2003 a period of personal trial and tribulation off the hardwood led Bryant to begin referring to himself as Black Mamba, which many assumed was merely a nickname that he liked, but he explains was an altogether different persona into which he could escape from his troubles and focus on his game. Why it was so important to him that he and the Lakers succeed after O'Neal left the team in 2004, and how he did indeed manage to lead the team to two more championships, even as his body began falling apart around him, which in turn forced him to begin pondering life after basketball. 
Why he ultimately decided to announce his retirement through a poem posted to the Derek Jeter-created website The Players' Tribune, what he made of the tremendous response to the poem, and how he ultimately arrived at the conclusion that it ought to be the basis of his first project at the production company he formed after his basketball career came to an end, plus much more, including which up-and-coming basketball player most reminds him of himself, who he regards as the greatest basketball player of all time, what he would do during the national anthem if he were still on the court in 2017, and the list goes on. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Toby, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. We usually begin with a question that I'm going to put off for one second because I think our listeners should know that we're talking in connection with Dare Basketball, which is this beautiful animated short that is about your career, and it was adapted from the poem that you announced your retirement with. And so just for the sake of listeners who haven't yet read that or seen the film, I wonder if I could ask you to read the poem. Would you be willing to? Sure. Thank you. Here it is. Sure, 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 sure. Okay. Dear Basketball, from the moment I started rolling my dad's tube socks and shooting imaginary game-winning shots in the Great Western Forum, I knew one thing was real. I fell in love with you. A love so deep, I gave you my all. From my mind and body to my spirit and soul. As a six-year-old boy, deeply in love with you, I never saw the end of the tunnel. I only saw myself running out of one. And so I ran. I ran up and down every court after every loose ball for you. You asked for my hustle. I gave you my heart. Because it came with so much more. I played through the sweat and the hurt. Not because challenge called me. But because... You called me. I did everything for you. Because that's what you do when someone makes you feel as alive as you've made me feel. You gave a six-year-old boy his Laker dream. And I'll always love you for it. But I can't love you obsessively for much longer. This season is all I have left to give. My heart can take the pounding. My mind can handle the grind. But my body knows it's time to say goodbye. And that's okay. I'm ready to let you go. I want you to know now so we both can savor every moment we have left together. The good and the bad. We have given each other all that we have. And we both know, no matter what I do next, I'll always be that kid with the rolled up socks, garbage can in the corner, five seconds on the clock, Ball in my hands. Five, four, three, two, one. Love you always, Kobe. It's so beautiful. And you read it with great feeling. I think it's what people will have to look forward to if they haven't yet seen the short is animation by the great Glenn Keane, music by the great John (laughs) Williams, and narration by the great Kobe Bryant. But now the way we we normally begin, and I'd like to go to that, is just always ask our guests where they born and raised and what did their folks do for a living. I think in your case, you have memories going back pretty far about seeing your dad, right? Oh, sure. My my father played in the NBA for eight years and then decided to take his career abroad. So me and my uh, two older sisters, my mother, we all moved to Italy where he played for an additional eight years. So we grew up in Italy. So I started elementary school in an Italian school which was awesome because they were all just understanding the basics of the language as well. Right. So I just kind of, we both, you know, all of us, all three of us just kind of jumped right in. What was it like on the level of just being a, a kid wanting to make friends and fit in and, and stuff like that for you when you're kind of moving around Europe and I don't imagine there were that many other people of color and yeah, people none. that spoke English and all of that. So how did that affect the sort of kid that you were? Well, I, I wound up being isolated quite a bit um, after I got settled into the particular city that we were in because we bounced around quite a lot as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were in about four different cities over the course of eight years. Um, but sports was the great equalizer because, you know, the rules are universal right. and hand gestures are universal. So I wound up learning a great deal about soccer, which I knew nothing about right. before going over there. Right. And that's how I made friends. And that's also how 
I learned how to pick up the language really, really quickly. I mean, I learned a great deal in school, but right. you learn how kids truly speak <laughs> <laughs> outside of the classroom. Right, right. So, That's also universal. Yeah. There too. But so basketball, though, was it? I think you said your earliest memory of seeing your dad play was on TV at like three. I was, yeah. and you were, you've said that you would, he'd take a timeout, you'd take a timeout, <laughs> stuff like that. It was very cute. But now when you go to Italy and he's playing, were you more or less inclined to go into basketball as opposed to another sport because you had such a impressive figure who was already doing this in your family? Sure. Well, I, I had the, the, it's probably easier for me to play soccer. Mm-hmm. But basketball was just calling to me. You know, it's like you know, when you're born and you have this passion, you feel like this is what you were born to do, mm-hmm. sort of thing. Where I could, I just couldn't stop, right? So I'd always have a ball in my hands or I'd always be watching a game. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the NBA wasn't as global as it is now. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather, who was back home in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. used to record the games. And he used to send us all the tapes. To Europe. <laughs> yes, to Europe. And I used to just watch him over and over and over again. What do you think it was about that sport, aside from the fact that it was what your dad did, that you were drawn to? Well, I, I love the sound that the ball makes when you dribble it. I love the smell of a new basketball. I love the feel of an old one, mm-hmm. right? I love the sound that the ball makes when it goes through the net. <laughs> you know, all those little details. And also, you know, it, it's a sport where you can use as some sort of escapism, yeah. right? I can pick up a basketball, go to a park, and shoot and imagine Right, other sports, soccer, you can't do that. You have to have others, right? You, you know, with basketball, you don't, you don't need that. You can use your imagination and like see things in front of you and like hear and imagine the crowd around you. You know, being that I grew up in Italy, it was very important for me to have that as kind of a an escape. So, as your dad's career in Europe, I guess, wound down, you guys all moved back to the U.S. I guess to Philadelphia, yeah. and I wonder what that reacclimation was like for you. I don't know. I mean, maybe even from having had to leave English speaking to go to Europe to now come back to it with having been sort of nurtured in a very different culture. <laughs> what was, were you immediately sort of accepted back in into? What? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> no. I got dropped in the middle of eighth grade year. Yeah, and that's like, these kids have been together since like kindergarten, right. right? And I get dropped in the middle of eighth grade. Hitting puberty. Hitting probably, puberty. Yeah. Have no no idea of what sense of style is in the United <laughs> States, right? No idea what slang is. Right. No, no, absolutely no clue. Just a complete, awkward, tall weirdo. <laughs> and so, no, I was not accepted. Right. <laughs> but again, basketball helped bridge that gap. Though, yeah. So. I mean, pretty quickly, it was clear that you were excelling at that, right? I did, I did okay, you right. know, but, but like, it wasn't until about my junior year in high school where, where things really started taking off. I mean, really? Up until that point, it was kind of... Touch and go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, one other thing I guess I should mention, because now everybody knows your name. They've sort of... You don't think about it. But I imagine at the time, a name, Kobe Bean Bryant, oh. is not your conventional name. How did you even end up with that That name? is a layup for teasing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like a, I mean, so Kobe came from, no no kidding, my mother and father were at a Japanese steakhouse. Right. And my mother was pregnant with me at the time. And they looked on the menu and they saw Kobe beef. <laughs> no kidding. And they say, oh, that's a great name. Great name. <laughs> and that's, voila. Right. And then my father's nickname when he played was Joe Jelly Bean Bryant because he used to eat jelly beans all the time. <laughs> He said, wouldn't it be wonderful right. if we gave his, if his middle name was Bean? Oh, man. It's like, really? <laughs> so All I'm right. sure that uh, now, it's, now it's cool to be named Kobe, but I'm sure it was. It took some time. Bean never stuck, though. No, Bean, <laughs> Bean, Bean hasn't caught on yet. Right, it's still working on <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So aside from sports, pre-junior year, let's say, when this became so much a part of your identity that you were well-known beyond school even and people were scalping tickets to see you in high school and all of that. Before that, what other interests outside of sports did you have as a kid? Was animation one of them? It was storytelling. Storytelling. It wasn't animation yet, but it was a story. I've always been extremely fascinated by how stories are told, right? What gravitates you to a story? Again, being in Italy and then coming back to Philadelphia and having that time alone helps you do that, right? You wind up reading things, you wind up kind of observing things a lot more, and you start seeing the common threads between the stories that you see on film and then stories that are taking place right in front of you mm-hmm. and trying to then piece together the arc of the narrative that you know transpires on screen and in real life. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started getting that itch. Yeah. 
this actually brings up a good opportunity to ask you about a, what you've written about as sort of a turning point. I guess you're 12 years old. You're back now in Philadelphia participating in something called the Sunny Hill Future League, which your dad and uncle had really excelled at when they were your age. Legends. Legends, right? <laughs> Legends. And what happened? I played the entire summer and didn't score one point. <laughs> Jeez. Not, I mean, like, not even a free throw, not like a fluke layup. Right. Zero. Zero. And I was like, man, this has got to be the most embarrassing thing <laughs> that could ever happen to my father and my right. uncle. <laughs> like, this is horrendous. Right. And it was really awkward because I had those I had really big volleyball knee pads. Oh, gosh. Because I was growing so fast. Right. So I had Oscar Slaughter. So my knees were really tender. Oh. And so I had these really big knee pads, socks all the way up. And it was just, it was just all bad. Right. So I, I played horribly and I looked worse. And you contemplated at that point giving it all up? Well, I wasn't sure what to do. And my father gave me the best piece of advice that he could have ever given me. He gave me a hug and said, listen, son, we're going to love you whether you score 60 or score zero. And that was a big turning point for me because then, then I was like, you know what? Thank you, but I'm going to score 60. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to do this thing. Right. And, I, and I just practiced over and over and over. Now, when you were around that age, who were the great NBA players who you looked at? Magic was my number one. Okay. Like I love Magic. You know, right. Michael was Jordan was still kind of coming into his own as right. a young player. But Magic was my guy. The Lakers were my favorite team, and so I watched him all the time. I wanted to be like him, and you know, like the whole thing—the hook shot, the fancy passing, all that stuff. <laughs> I was a huge Laker Laker fan. And with regard to Michael, I guess you at some point around the same time, around when this pivotal twelve-year-old moment was happening, you you learned about his early story as well, right? Yeah. I mean, he had had his own issues. He did. I mean, he, he had failed as well in high school and being cut from the team. You know, I, I start finding similarities between myself and him from what motivated us. Mm-hmm. You know, Magic always played from a place of pure love and innocence, mm-hmm. you know, and whereas Michael played from a place of darkness mm-hmm. and kind of the need to prove something. Right. And that's what we had in common. So that's when I kind of started gravitating and learning more about what makes him tick. If you can sort of psychoanalyze yourself, what were you trying to prove at that point? Well, I think I was trying to prove to myself that I belonged. Mm-hmm. Going from city to city in Italy, you're always a new kid. You don't fit, right? And then coming back to the States, you really don't fit. Mm-hmm. Right? So it was kind of like, no, I, not only do I belong here, but I'm also on the court is where I have my chance to get revenge on all of you other guys out there who who don't want me to fit right. in with you, right, right. <laughs> right? This is my domain. Right. I might not know how to dress. <laughs> I might not know what, you know, don't sweat me means. Right. <laughs> but I know how to shoot the ball and right. I know how to defend right. and this is my domain. Coming back around, you go off eventually to Lower Marion High School, become one of the most dominant high school basketball players, I guess, ever. And... At that time, though, just to remind people, it's not, this is, I guess, 96 when you entered the draft. It's not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, but at the time, it was such a different culture in the sense that you were only the sixth person ever to come out of high school and go right into the draft. I think only Kevin Garnett had done it in the 20 years before you did it in that period. So was that a tough decision? Was it a close call? Did you ever seriously consider the alternative, which I guess would have been going on to college and playing there. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, especially because you know, I was also the, the first guard to do it. Because prior to that, it was all big guys. Right. So I had a lot of doubts. And then also the normalcy of just growing up and being a, a child and being a teenager and being off in college, right? And losing those moments. But what I came around to, I said, you know, you go to college to try to, you know, find yourself. I know what I want to do. You go to college to try to get a job, mm-hmm. have a job here in front of me. And not only that, but I get to learn from the greatest in the world. Mm-hmm. So why would I not take that? Mm-hmm. I made a vow. I said, you know, even though I'm playing in the NBA, I can still go and pick up the same books that kids are reading at UCLA or right. Harvard or whatever. Right. And I can still read them. I can still ask questions and learn. So why not go for the jump? And in fact, I think during your career, several times, you sat in on classes in different yeah. cities, right? I remember reading about Boston or I think Dallas maybe or different places. You yeah. So once, though, you declared your intentions to, to go pro, 
you and your representatives, if I'm remembering correctly, kind of made it pretty clear that you were really only interested in playing for the Lakers. Yeah. I guess, why was that? And then how did it work out? Because not everybody remembers. You were drafted by the Hornets. So yeah. 13th pick, first round, you hear David Stern call your name. Did you know that it had already been worked out that you would be able to realize this dream of playing for the Lakers? Yeah, so the the challenge was, and this is this is when I got a really quick lesson in the business of things. <laughs> My agent was like, listen, you know, New Jersey wants to take you at seven. We don't want you going to New Jersey. Right. <laughs> right. The Lakers have said if we can get you down to the 13th pick, they have a trade in place to bring you to L.A. Mm-hmm. We need to get you there. Right. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good to me. It's my favorite right, team. Right, so, you know. Right, right. And so that's what happened and slid down to 13 and got picked by the late. I mean, it's pretty. It's a pretty surreal moment. We have to thank Vlade Divac for that, yeah. right? Because he, he went to Charlotte so that that was possible. Yeah. Well, the uh, guy, the, the, there was a player named Dave Cowens who was one of the all-time greats from the, for the Celtics. Okay. And he, at the time, was the general manager of the Hornets. And when you get okay. drafted, you have to get on the phone with the team that drafts you and right. you know, they tell you welcome or whatever. And so um, I get on the phone with Dave Cowens, and Dave Cowens tells me, he goes, all right, so you know what's going on with the trade. I'm like, yeah. Now there's cameras and photographers in front right. of you, right, capturing the moment. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. you did know. I, I, yeah, I knew. Yes. Like I, okay. I, so I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I know what's going on. He was like, oh, that's great, because we couldn't have used you anyway. I was like, oh, <laughs> son of a. Yeah, yeah, you want to talk to him <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, and you have these, all these cameras in front of you, and you're just kind of like smiling, right, which is like, oh, right. you s- yeah. can't believe you just said that. Right. Now I think he probably kid. regrets that. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> okay, so during those first few years, I guess you were you were a rookie in 96, just 18, the youngest person at that point ever to play in an NBA game. How did you adjust in those first couple of years when you were still coming off the bench initially and all of that to being with Grown ass men yeah. playing in a tough league. It's not you didn't you know, somewhat there's an acclimation for a lot of these guys through college or whatever. You're thrown into the deep end. What was it what was that adjustment like? Well, it was a big adjustment, more so then than now for players, because now the the league is much, much younger. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time, the average age was like thirty three, right. thirty. So I'm dealing with grown men everywhere. Yeah. So there's no commonality. So again, here I am being the outsider, right? And so the only thing I could gravitate to was the game. Right. And so that's what I focused on. But I had to focus on it in practice and then after practice and, you know, going to the gym late at night to shoot because I wasn't playing in games. Right, right. <laughs> you know, which was extremely frustrating. Right. To see your peers performing at a high level night in and night out. And I'm my butt is glued to the bench. Sixth man or <laughs> yeah. whatever, yeah. Like 12th man. 12th man. man. <laughs> I, I, was, I was like deep on the bench. But yet, I guess immediately you were popular enough that... so. You, how did it work? You were picked as an all-star even that My second first, year. Second yeah, year. Yeah. But even the was it the first year you won the slam dunk contest? Yes, right? I did. So I mean, you were your profile was growing and you grew into it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It seems like the key moment was in ninety nine when Phil Jackson comes in to coach you guys for the first time. And this is a guy for anyone who needs a reminder who had also coached Jordan. Yeah. And that same year is when your career first really began to take off, I think. Yeah. Coincidence or, or not? No, it's not a coincidence at all. And, you know, Phil was a great manager. Like, he could see the, the broad view. And he had the ability to communicate to individuals, but communicate to individuals in a holistic way. Mm-hmm. But the guy that really showed up, he was, you know, my Obi-Wan Kenobi. He was the, <laughs> he was the mentor that shows up in the film. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> he was the Hagrid right. that brings Harry Potter to the right. world. Right. Was Tex Winter. Okay. And so Tex Winter was this 82-year-old man at the time who invented the triangle offense. And so what Phil tasked him with was every single game, I sit and watch the game with him. So we play a game, we have VHS tape, pop it in, watch every minute of every single game with Tex Winter, which just broke down. He just broke down every little detail wow. of the game, the nuances of things. And that's when tape first became such a big part of your prep? Yes. That's when I was able to start recognizing during the game yeah. things that players would have to watch film to recognize. Right. Because I'd watched so much film, I could right. then recognize things instantaneously. That's so interesting. So those years after Phil showed up, the the next three, you guys, three-peated, 2000, 2001, 2002 with championships – it was often, it was you and Shaq that were the, the faces of the franchise at that point. And on the one hand, you guys were dominant. 
on the other hand, it sounds like you were very different people. Yeah. When did that become clear and, and how would you describe basically the, the chemistry there? Because it worked, but it could explode. Yeah, I think our relationship can be summed up before Phil even arrived, which was doing a pickup game. And, you know, we were competing and I wasn't backing down. We we're on opposite teams yeah. and we we're going at it, right? Right. And Shaq is just big and he's, you know, massive. He's forceful. He's talking yeah. a lot of smack. Yeah, yeah. So he scores a basket. I tried to block his shot from behind. He scores it anyway. And he says, You can't get that, you little bitch. And I'm like, <laughs> Wait, hold up, man. Yeah. No, 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 no. I don't play that. You don't uh, talk to me like that. Right. What you going to do about it? What you going to do about it? <laughs> no kidding. And we went to blows, right? And guys had to come break it up. And, you know, so they're looking at me like, dude, are you out of your mind? I'm like, well, dude, you can't, can't let that happen, right? right? You know, right. she's going to have to just knock my head off. But he's going to have... You want to know that it's going to be a fight every time. Right, right. And our relationship, that's how our relationship was. It was one that was built on respect, mm-hmm. but one that was built on challenge. Right. And constantly challenging each other. And you know, our relationship brought three championships. Right, it worked. One thing that I know just from, from reading past interviews of yours, you've said that if your relationship with Phil Jackson ultimately has had its it's started high, it's ended high, but there were periods there where there were some strains. And part of that, I think you felt was that he would sort of motivate Shaq by giving you a hard time. Oh yeah. <laughs> so like if he wrote a, he would write a book or something that would make some snide references. Yeah. So you saw that even in the moment. Oh, sure. I mean, I used to tell him, I said, Phil, listen, just let me know. Like, I, you know, don't, don't, don't act like I don't know what's going on. Right. You know what I mean? Like right. it, it's, it's cool, but right. just, you know, just keep it real with me though. Right. You know, and I and the best example of that is I had a big streak there of scoring forty points yeah. in like nine consecutive games, or whatever. Wow. But that's when Shaq was out, right? Shaq came back for like the last few games of that, going into the tenth game, which would have been of record. Phil calls me up to his office in the morning and says, "Listen, we're starting to lose Shaq." So what do you mean? He said, "Well, starting to drift a little bit because you know you're taking on so much of the burden of the offense. We need to get him back into the fold. So I need you to kind of dial back the scoring." <laughs> All right, man, cool. All right, right, fine. Right. And so that game I had opportunity to shoot the ball at the end and score forty, but instead I threw it down to him for for a layup and and that was Phil's mastery mm-hmm. of understanding what the team needs mm-hmm. and understanding what guys need to, you know, reach their full potential. He always had a broad view on things. And he's a yeah, just an interesting guy overall in the sense he would give you guys books every season that or yeah, sort of would. tailor made for each person. He would, he would. He would I don't know if he read all of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he would hand out books. We'd have like one long road trip every season that was like two and a half weeks long. Mm-hmm. And during that stretch, he would always have a book sitting on the seat of every player when we arrived on the plane. So Trying to say something to you or get you to... Well, get you to think. Yeah. Right? You know, Phil yeah. is not... He, he doesn't think of himself as a coach. He thinks of, of himself as a teacher, almost right. uh, as a professor. So Shaq leaves in 04. There was now less maybe acrimony there, but at the same time, with some exceptions of great performances by you, like the most famously probably the 81-point game against Toronto in 06, which is second only to Wilts 100 in the history of the game. But there were the team was not as successful as yeah. it had been, and you, I think, grew a little frustrated. I think there were t- some talk at that time Maybe you wanted to be traded, all of that stuff. It didn't obviously happen, but how do you look back on that period between Shaq's departure and Pogasol's arrival? A very tense one yeah. because, you know, my biggest fear after that was to be a player that was a great player but never won. You know, and history is littered with players like that. Mm-hmm. I just didn't have the teams around them in order to be successful, and I didn't want to be one of those players. And, you know, I voiced my concerns about that and said, listen, if you guys are just sitting up here and wanting me to score 80 points, 70 points, 60 points to put people in the seats right. <laughs> to generate revenue right. while you keep the payroll low, I'm not the one for that. No. So <laughs> no. give me some help in here yeah. or ship me somewhere else. Right. And, and Dr. Jerry Buss, to his credit, was like, listen, we're trying to build a team, but it just takes patience. We right. can't make bad deals. Just trust me. And I trusted him, and I'm, yeah. I'm happy that I did. Yeah, it came, came through the other side. In that period, I think, right around that period is when we first heard the nickname Black Mamba. Yeah. Why did that come about? I think you had had a tough period. Yeah. 03, we don't need to rehash, but whatever, Colorado, whatever. Now you come through, you have a nickname. Why that name? Well, because I felt the need to separate myself in a sense, right? There was a lot of things going on personally with 
the situation in Colorado and flying back and forth from games and trying to hold my family together as well. And, and I just felt like the game, which was always like a safe haven for me, was being compromised as well. And so I, I needed to create some sort of an alter ego just for myself. Yeah. So like when I step out here on the court, I'm right. somebody different. I'm Super not the person that was sitting the in the courthouse. Right, yeah, I'm right. somebody different, right? right? right. It, it's And it helped me for my sanity. Right. <laughs> and then it just turned into something more. That's so interesting though, because did it have that effect that you hoped it would by, you know, actually you could separate Kobe from this other guy in your own mind? Absolutely. Absolutely, because I was able to step out on the court and, and be something else. I was able to focus. transport myself somewhere yeah. else. Interesting. So, so 08, you've got your new big man with you, yeah. with Gasol. You guys had an unbelievable season. You're named MVP of the league. Then championships 09, 2010. You said, quote, I had to win the championship without Shaquille. I just had to. It was just a challenge. That was just an obsession, close quote. Yeah. Why? Just again, coming back to the idea of, what did you, even with all your success that we've talked about, still need to prove? Well, it was a thing where it was like, Shaq, you know what I do. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Like, so to sit back and say, okay, well, Kobe can't win without Shaq. We both know that's not true. <laughs> you know, you know. What I mean? So it was like a, it was just an itch, right? And you know, the kid put me in the bucket of your supporting cast player, your supporting cast player. I'm like, dude, no, I'm not. <laughs> you know, and it became this obsession to prove it. And that's, the, right. that's just the challenge of the moment. Right. And fortunately enough, I was able to get Powell and Lamar and right. D Fish and we got worked. it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As time went by, you sometimes began to, I think, kind of like winkingly refer to yourself as Vino in social <laughs> media and whatever. The idea yeah. that like a fine wine, you just get better with time. <laughs> But the reality that every person, every athlete faces is that with time, the body is not going to get better, yeah. healthier. And I'm sure I'm going to miss some examples, but just to give a little list of things that I've read you were dealing with, as far back as 2000, tendonitis in the knees was starting, yeah. 2003, torn cartilage in the right knee, finger fracture in 09, torn Achilles, the most famous one in 2013 which to your credit, somehow you still made your free throws. <laughs> but like, what? talk about what it's like when you feel still probably like the high school guy who can do anything, yeah. but your body's not cooperating. Well, it, having to accept reality, you know, that's always a tough thing. Mm -hmm. For people in general, for athletes in particular, when you're used to doing certain things at a certain level, then all of a sudden you can't do them anymore. And then what do you do? What option do you have? You can try to resist that and try to be what you were, or, you know, you can hold hands with Father Time and try to come to some sort of compromise, yeah. which is what I try to do. So that means changing the game, changing the tempo of things, changing the spots on the floor, and uh, just had to accept it. And as these things were happening to you, are you starting to think about what do I do after basketball? Was it start, like when in the process did you first begin to even think in those terms? Well, I was thinking about it since I was 20, 21 years wow. old. Wow. And so I used to, dabble into a lot of different things you know, writing ads in particular i used to write my ads nike ads and all that sort of stuff wow. and so i started thinking about it a long time ago but i didn't really put a structure in place right so when i tore my achilles it was like oh yo this could literally be over like now mm -hmm. then what are you going to do mm -hmm. <laughs> what are you going to do you don't want to be one of the athletes that's still wandering around in limbo trying mm -hmm. to figure things out like and so i went soul soul searching and trying to figure out okay what is the biggest industry I can get into? How can I generate the most revenue? And that is absolutely the wrong question to ask. <laughs> and it wasn't until I said, okay, what do you love to do? Right. Well, I love telling stories. Mm -hmm. All right, then let's do that. <laughs> and just to that point though about telling stories, it doesn't necessarily literally mean somebody that writes Harry Potter, although that, you know, J.K. Rowling could be an example of somebody that you, that was doing the kind of thing you want to do. You had all kinds of role models and I just passed on in your hallway here on the wall a variety of people from different fields who in one way or another told stories. Maybe you can talk about some of the people who you held in the highest regard as storytellers. Well, I mean, from Walt Disney, Steve Jobs to Michael Jackson being the number one muse for me of all time, you know, but the biggest lesson I took from them is that they, they do what they love to do. It wasn't a matter of industry. It was a matter of what do you love doing, right? And so when I looked back on my career and said, I fell into basketball because I loved it, mm -hmm. not because I knew what the business was gonna come 
with it, right? I just loved it, mm-hmm. all right? And so from that point, it gave me the foundation and the confidence of being able to say, man, season's coming to an end, career's coming to an end. It's okay. I'm all right with that. Mm-hmm. I'm ready to, to move on and take the lessons that I've learned from the game and move them, move them over into what's coming next. So when did you finally, was there a moment when you knew, all right, it's time to retire? Yeah, I would sit in meditation in the mornings. I've been doing that probably since 90, 99. Wow. And my thoughts when they would wander would always circle around the game, upcoming game, strategy, and things of that nature. But in the last year, as I started sitting, my mind started drifting to story, started drifting to ideas, started drifting to human nature, and then how can that be expressed through metaphor? And I was like, you know what? I'm not obsessively in this game anymore. I can't give to the game what I've always given to the game. And I don't want to do that mm-hmm. to the game. So I think it's best to walk away. So November 29th, 2015, people signed on or you know visited the Players' Tribune website. This is the site that Derek Jeter started and I think you were an early investor and supporter of. We did actually, a few months before November 2015, a cover story, THR, where I I got to interview Derek and I was saying, like, I get why you want to do this. It sounds like an interesting thing, but why should somebody like Kobe, who can have his own website or social media pages or whatever, why should they communicate instead through the Players' Tribune? What for you was the reason why, when you had this biggest announcement you could have made, you chose to do it through that well, website. to help other athletes, right? Like his calling, his passion was to build a platform. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it's not mine. Mm-hmm. My calling is storytelling, right? Creating, right? And so from that sense, why not help yeah. <laughs> another? Yeah. You know, and I think that's really important, especially for his athletes, to really help each other. It's not, you're not trying to gobble up every single pot that you can see out there, <laughs> right? You find your passion and you stick to it and you find other athletes and help them and vice versa. And why the other question then is a poem. Has poetry always been something that you enjoyed or was it just sort of a gut feeling or this is how it's coming out of me when I want to, what I want to say? What was, how'd you arrive at these 52 lines of free verse? I had a really great speaking arts teacher named Jay Mastriano when I was at Lower Marion High School who taught me everything. I mean, we, we studied from Othello to Shakespeare to Raising in the Sun to you know, all of Joseph Campbell's works. And wow. so I think the ability to write was was there from her and mm-hmm. and to communicate clearly. And then when I started writing, it just started coming out that way. And, and, it, and it wasn't something that was, I didn't sit with it very long. I just figured out, okay, what do I want to say in this retirement letter? Who do I want to speak to? I said, I want to speak to the game. I never got a chance to really talk to the game. So what would I say? And then once I... That was the, the, the thing, the foundation, yeah. and it just came pouring out. Did you show it to anyone else before you published it? Yeah, I, I showed uh, my family. Yeah. I brought it into the office, and yeah. I read it. At the time, he was my agent, but mm-hmm. also the godfather of our middle child, yeah. Rob Palenka. I read it to him. How did people respond? I mean, it's a, such a, just listening to you read it a few minutes ago, it's like you can get emotional listening to it. It's such a heartfelt thing. So... How were the people in your life who you knew responding to it? And, and did you ever anticipate that it would get the sort of reaction that it did when it went out to the world? Well, Rob, Rob and Vanessa both were emotional because you know, we had lived this journey together, mm-hmm. you know, like every, you know, every up, every down. So they were emotional when I read it um, to them. And in terms of the reaction, I, I, I couldn't imagine the reaction on a broad scale that came with it. Right. Like when you're writing something that's very personal, you're not thinking of the ripple of effects. You're just simply communicating from a place of truth, mm-hmm. right? And so to be able to see how other people have responded to it is just a, a beautiful feeling. What was the first indication to you that it was really going over well? Well, my wife got emotional over it because she's not, she's not, she, doesn't, she doesn't get too emotional yeah. about things. I mean, it's, it's, she's a tough cookie, man, <laughs> and, and it brought a tear to her eye. Right. And so once I saw that, and I was like, well... Maybe this is a really emotional piece, but I didn't mean it to be right, that way. Right, like I didn't, right, didn't, right. you don't you don't write a piece and say, okay, I want to make people feel really <laughs> emotional and like right, teary eyed. Right. You know, right. that wasn't the goal. No, it was just like course. I just want to I just want to speak to the game. And of just, course. Yeah. <laughs> so that that went up again, November 29th, twenty fifteen. You still played for about 
four more months after that, your final game, people will remember April 13th, 2016, 60 points. You went out <laughs> with a, a huge bang with your body falling apart around you and all of that. I remember there was no way I was going to be able to get tickets to that game. So I, w- I was at the Dodgers instead and the game's letting out and we're going past the sports bar and everybody, there was this crowd growing, growing because people are saying, what the hell is happening? <laughs> so I want to ask you, what what the hell was happening? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I started out the game really poorly. And it was one of those things where you're just like, okay, you got to step outside of yourself and just laugh at the moment and say, you know, this is either going to be the worst performance in history right. <laughs> or or I'm going to be able to make something out of this, right? right? And just kept plugging away. I think the game was very indicative of uh, my career as a whole, where it doesn't start out as something beautiful. I mean, you have to work for it. It's ugly. Right. You got to work your way through it, right? You're down and it seems like you're out and you got to work your way through it. But once the shot started falling, then it was just about staying in the moment, right? <laughs> was- staying in the moment. That's what it's about. And for you, I guess you probably couldn't have scripted a better Oh God, no! Ending, right? <laughs> no, God, no! I remember when I when I gave John Williams his, his award at AFI, yes. and I'm in the back, and it was like a really surreal moment because I'm standing there, and there's Harrison Ford, and there's Tom <laughs> Hanks, and J.J. Abrams, right? Right, and so J.J. Abrams leans over, and goes, "You know, if you were to write that in a script, <laughs> I would tell you to go rewrite it because right. that's too unrealistic." Right. It's crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. Well, so. How soon after that grand finale did you first start to think that there might be a further life for Dear Basketball? Well, once I got a sense of the reaction, it'd be pretty cool to have this be the first film that we do. We being? We being as a company. Because originally it was, I guess, your broader company is Kobe Inc., but now you have Granity Productions, which is going to be specifically for films. Yeah, for films and storytelling. So I've since just unified into one company, which is just Granity Granity. Studios. And so this should be our first story. Uh, All right. Well, Glenn Keane is one of my favorite animators of all time. And his process is that old school process where things are done by hand. Right. That beautiful animation style by hand, which is very symbolic of a career because you build things by hand. There's no... There's no skipping steps. You have to you have to do the grunt work. We got to tell people, Glenn Keane, 37 years at Disney. You owe Aladdin to him. You owe Pocahontas. I think Ariel from The Little yeah. Mermaid. So many of these characters. But before we even talk about him and what he did hand, with this beautiful, primarily black and white hand drawn, but also then purple and gold, of course. Why animate it? I felt like that's the best way to communicate a dream. Right, you, through animation, you can add like, you know, what you feel emotionally. You can represent through animation. You know, you can you can do magical things and have things sweeping in and out. Right, and you can feel the texture of the film through animation, through every line that Glenn is creating. You can feel the soul of the piece, and that's why I felt felt it was important for it to be animation. Did you know Glenn prior to this? No. So you just cold called him. Yes. <laughs> Yes. How did that go? Glenn was like, well, you know, I've, I've never animated for sports before. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, well, First what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the story is wonderful. Right. And uh, yeah, I love to take a crack at it. I love to take the challenge and uh, see what we can do. He did a great job. He's called it, quote, the most difficult thing I've animated by a mile. Close, <laughs> quote. So that's interesting, especially when you think about some of those other things I mentioned that he's done. But the other key collaborator on this is somebody who you actually did know for a few years before this all started to come together. How do you and John Williams end up being BFFs? <laughs> well, I cold called him and it was like 2008, I cold called him and I just wanted to pick his brain and talk about process because I felt like there was something to be learned from the way he writes his compositions and also how he conducts them with how to manage or lead a basketball team or how to compose a basketball game. So we sat down and we talked and we, you know, the first thing I said, I said, oh, you gotta tell me everything about everything that you've ever scored. <laughs> <laughs> he just started laughing, but we had a great right. conversation and yeah. built a friendship from that point forward. One of the things I read was that you would kind of look at his process like, all right, what's the beginning, what's the end, what's the structure of what he does, all that, and then try and apply that on the basketball court? Yes, and how do you move through tempo changes? Because the game is all about tempo. It's not about 
you know, shot making, all those things. That's the end result. But the thing that really controls games is momentum, right? So from that aspect, when you're writing a piece, how do you build momentum? Right? Then how can I build momentum throughout the course of a game? Right? How are you giving clear direction to the to the winds? Right? How are you giving clear direction to the percussion? And then how do you blend them together seamlessly? Right? Because everybody has their own roles that they must perform. But as you're listening to them, it just sounds like a united, a united thing, right? Initially, when you're talking to them, it was not with any idea that you might one day actually no. work together. It was sort of a surprise to you, too, that he yeah. became involved, right? How did it all come down? Well, I called him and said, you know, John, I'm doing a, uh, a short film, animated short film with Glenn Keane. It's about my uh, retirement letter to basketball. He said, oh, I've read that. That it's a, it's a wonderful piece. It's a wonderful piece. And I'm like, well, I'll, could you write the music for it? <laughs> <laughs> and and he, uh, he said, let me think about it. Let me think about it. And then he calls me back and says, you know, I'd have to take a couple weeks off of scoring Star Wars <laughs> if that's okay. you know. And then he said, I would like to use the same orchestra if that's okay with you. And I'm like, uh... <laughs> Yeah, I think that's okay. Yeah, we'll I think make that, it work. Yeah. I think that's okay. <laughs> but but the thing that was awesome is that he said that the reason why he was important for him to do the piece was the core message of the piece. Glenn at the time was going through a transition of leaving Disney. I'm going through a transition of leaving the game. Mm-hmm. And John now is looking at his transition of looking at this unbelievable career that he's had, mm-hmm. right? And so when he read the piece, he saw himself in it oh. and felt like this is something that I would I would love to be a part of. So. Do you remember when you first heard, when you first saw the animation and then when you first saw it paired with John's music? Yeah, well, when we uh, we sat down in a meeting with Glenn, John, and myself, and Glenn showed the animation to this point, and John and I were both just completely floored by it. And also, they're both sitting there. Like, John has his music mm-hmm. sheets and has his pencil. Glenn has his sketchbook, has his pencil. Right, and they're just flipping through the pages, and everything right. is just done by hand. It was just the coolest thing in the yeah. world to sit there and see these two geniuses, right. you know, have a similar process, right. just in completely different industries, you know. But yeah, once we once we saw the animation, we were just completely blown away by it. And then when we heard the score for the first time, it was during the recording session, and I had to remind myself that the red light was on and we're <laughs> recording because I was totally about to geek out, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god, wait. That's so I gotta funny. be quiet. I gotta be quiet. But it's your your point about the pencils is actually very interesting because neither of what those two people who everybody regards as a genius, but what they do is not really done anymore. You have hand drawn has been basically, you know, replaced by computer animation. And John, I think, has talked about the fact that nobody writes music by by hand in the way that he does anymore. They, you know, it's it tends to be. I guess also, I guess computer, I don't know, but yeah. like done in a more quote unquote practical way, but obviously it works well for them. Right. So sort of they're old school. And I know you always took pride on the Corden being sort of an old school Absolutely. approach. You know, the first time it was shown to the public, was it at the Hollywood Bowl? It was. How did that night go? It was a little nerve wracking, honestly, because, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, I've been to the Hollywood Bowl before, never thought I'd be on stage at the Hollywood Bowl and to be there with John to debut this piece was just like a surreal moment. But I didn't realize, like when John asked after the recording session, he said, do you mind if I make this a part of uh, my lineup and perform at the Hollywood Bowl? I'm like, yeah, it's cool, yeah, mm-hmm. what? Right. Seriously, right. yeah, you mean right. like Indiana Jones, Harry Potter, <laughs> Deer Basketball, and Star Wars, that would you, right, right. seriously? Right. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh wow, that would be amazing. He's like, okay, well, then we just have to do a couple practice session so you can get the timing down of you know i'm like wait what 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 (laughs) you want me to read with he's like oh yeah 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 you can do it live with the orchestra i'm like oh my (laughs) god this is crazy (laughs) nervous time and it was two or three nights right three nights three Three nights nights at the hollywood bowl people loved it yeah it was it was awesome it was awesome to be up there it was awesome to be there with john to be there with glenn and uh, my family to be there it was just a wonderful wonderful time cool well with our remaining few minutes, I wonder if we can do something we call, we always wind down with rapid fire, just the first thing that comes to your okay. mind about something. What about your career do you feel proudest of? The hard work behind it. What's your biggest regret of your career? Wow, that's a tough one because so many so many things came to my mind all at once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
probably the amount of time that I that I spent on my craft and spent away from my family. Mm-hmm. Which of the five NBA titles means the most to you? If you could only ever revisit one. The, the last one against the Celtics. Really? That was the toughest one. 2010? To yeah, that was, that's the one. You guys were down three games to two. Down this is the, two. the team of Pierce and... And Ray Allen Ray. and Rondo and Garnett. I mean, it was they were they were loaded, and we were down three two, and being down fifteen points in the fourth quarter at home, and to come back and win against the Celtics. Yeah, yeah. it's major. Yeah, should college athletes be paid? Yes. If that had been allowed in 1996, would it have affected your decision about entering the draft? No. During your playing days. As we said, you would sometimes sit in on college classes. Do you have any plans to ever go and get that degree? Do you want to do that? No, because I'm too busy now yes. actually like having to make these real right. decisions right. with real right. financial you know, <laughs> ramifications behind it. Right. So. Absolutely. <laughs> Will you ever be a coach, general manager, or owner of an NBA team? No. What's the biggest way in which the NBA today is different from when you were starting out? It's much, much younger. Which player coming up today most reminds you of yourself? Russell Westbrook. Who's the greatest basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan. Who else would fill out the starting lineup of the greatest basketball team ever? <sighs> well, I, I got to go with my, my guys. Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Bill Russell, mm-hmm. and Hakeem Olajuwon. Nice. Those, those are my five. Are you physically still feeling the effects of your career? No, thank God for that, because yeah. our my kids are just really, really active, <laughs> and if I couldn't chase them, that'd be a shame. And you just had, a, just had another one, We right? did. She's awesome. nine months, and she's walking. That's awesome. She's like all over the place now. If you were still in the league and had a game tonight, and it came time for the national anthem to be played, what would you do? Neil. And if you could speak directly to President Donald Trump right now, what would you say to him? Focus on serving, not leading. At halftime on December 18th at the Staples Center, the Lakers are going to retire not one, but both of the numbers that you wore during your career. Number eight, which you wore until the start of 06-07. Number 24, which you wore thereafter. What does that mean to you? Well, it it means I've been fortunate enough to have a really long career with one organization and uh, been fortunate enough to have a chapter and then be fortunate enough to open up the next, start another book. So I actually have one book and then start another book and have that be successful as well. So I've been very, very lucky. And lastly, just as a sort of hypothetical that thankfully is not something that you ever really have to consider, but just, you know, as you look back on everything we've talked about, let's say that something had happened and you'd been injured in high school and you had not been able to enter the NBA and do everything that's happened since. What do you think you would be doing right now and what is the aspect of what you're doing right now that you would have missed the most i'd be writing stories i'd be writing stories i mean that's something that's just a part of me something that i love every bit as much as i've ever loved basketball which i'm very fortunate to be able to say so i'd be writing stories still same thing same yeah. thing that's great to be able the to path to get here would have been different yeah but i'd be doing the same thing awesome well thank you so much for doing this and congrats on the movie it's appreciate it man thank yeah. you very much thank you Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.